And we are back. I'm back. I'm back. Now, Wade, Yes. is uh, the Lawrence of Arabia music, is that because you're excited <laughs> about the uh, the sequel to Lawrence of Arabia being directed by... Um, uh, Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Yeah, the sequel, the uh, no, tra- uh, tra- Transformer, uh, the Transformers, the Audi years, or or Joe Swanberg. It's being yeah. done by Joe Swanberg. Oh, it'll yeah. cost it'll cost eight hundred and sixteen dollars and forty eight cents. <laughs> That'll be fabulous. It'll all take place in a cave, and uh, it'll be the uh, the missing uh, moment from that time that Lawrence couldn't couldn't find his compass. Yeah, his, his internal compass. His internal his, compass. His moral compass. He yeah, couldn't find it. That's it. That's what it is. All right, wait. So, here's what you're going to do. You're yeah. going to now regale us with a life changing experience <laughs> that is fast. I admit it's fascinated me. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's amazing. Okay, so yes, I. Uh, I'm I, bored. I am. Ba- <laughs> so I had an amazing time in Jordan. It was an extraordinary trip. Uh, quick, just a quick thumbnail on this. So. This was all organized uh, by my friend Brant Anderson. Brant is a producer. He's a uh, you know, producer of uh, movies like Everest and uh, Lone Survivor and a lot of other stuff. And uh, Brant was uh, working with the UNHCR, the uh, UN High Commission on Refugees, and uh, they were the ones that put the idea in his head to organize a Hollywood filmmaking boot camp for these kids at the Azraq camp in Jordan, which is the largest refugee camp for Syrian refugees outside of, well, in the world. And um, 55,000 people, 60% of them are kids. And it's, it's just a, it's a horrible tragedy. It's just sitting right there out in the middle of the Jordanian desert, about 50, 50 miles uh, east of Amman, and, um, and about two hours from the Syrian border, uh, by all estimates. And in any case, the, um, so yeah, so Brandt called in you know, a lot of friends, and, uh, and we, we had a great group of people going, uh, which included uh, Shay Mitchell from uh, Pretty Little Liars, uh, Jason Begay from uh, Chicago PD, uh, Tobias Schleisler, the cinematographer for Lone Survivor and uh, Beauty and the Beast, among many other amazing movies. And uh, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a really an amazing time. And we wound up making four films with the kids, and one of them just brought everyone to tears on the last night, and it was uh, it was an amazing experience. It really, really was. So, what did you do? What did, you... what did we do? Well, it, 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 you, we played it a little bit by ear. We were originally going to have different uh, sessions uh, on different things, you know, like like Tobias had a had a cinematography clinic with these kids, teaching them. We. We we got them. Uh, we left them with two decked out iPads with uh, already you know, stolen camera lenses and you know a, a shotgun mic on each. You know an iPad like iPad Pros that you can use both to shoot and to edit and all that kind of stuff. Um, and um, now, when you said the word, we left them with a shotgun mic. Yeah. Did they just hear the word shotgun, uh, or, yeah, yeah. Or, or did they hear the word mic? So so I'm going to ignore that. So here's the the first day, it, I, I gave him like a 20-minute presentation on story, and we had six translators, and the translators were amazing. Amazing, I should add. Uh, by the way, one of the translators uh, used to live in Santa Monica. She's a Jordanian-American, and she's over there. And I'm like, what are you kidding me, Santa Monica? Like, wh- how, really? And it, was a, it was a pretty funny moment. Um, just all the same points of reference. But in any case, the uh, so I gave a, a but we started and I gave a twenty minute presentation on story, on writing, on how to you know what a story is and how you build a story, and then uh, Jason Begay went up and gave and sort of picked up the baton where I left it and came at it from an actor's point of view and um, uh, and uh, you know we had uh, another actress there, uh, uh, 
Julia Morrison, who was terrific. She was just amazing, kind of bringing the kids along. She and Shay Mitchell and, and, and Jason gave them, you know, just so many tools for, because most of them wanted to act. And then um, the uh, we broke them up into groups, you know, directors and actors and, then, and you know, writers and, and people who wanted to do different things. And it was rather interesting, the... Um, when Brent said, uh, so who's interested in directing? There were almost no hands that went up. There were like a couple of guys. And when he said, you know, the director's the person that gets to tell everybody what to do, five girls shot their hands up. And uh, I thought, well, there goes that stereotype about Muslim women. Um, so, and, and they were amazing. And the film that just brought the house down was written by one of the girls that, you know, I had four writers in my group, two, two girls and two boys. And uh, the, the fourth girl, it was the thing that she wrote that two other girls directed and another one uh, handled the camera and another girl was the star and it just, it tore people apart. It was just unbelievable. And she, the girl who wrote it, you know, when I sat there with the writers that first day and I was, and, and I was just asking them, what, do you, what ideas do you have? Do you have any stories that you want to tell? And, um, you know, the two girls we were told because it's very conservative culture would probably be less forthcoming and they were both sort of, well, no, I don't really, I don't have any ideas. And, and I said to them, uh, and, and especially to this one who was originally from Damascus, uh, as it was explained to me, uh, I said, look, think of an emotion. Just think of an emotion that you want to communicate to others, something that you feel and you want others to feel that same emotion. And think about what makes you feel that emotion. Think, remember what I talked about, the framework of a story. It's a difficult journey, and at the end of that journey is truth. Use that as a template and, and, you know, write three pages. And the girls then, you know, the moms come early for the girls because the girls have to fix dinner and do all of the sort of domestic chores. And I thought, well, you know, we'll be lucky if, if we get two, two out of the four scripts. I don't think the girls are necessarily going to come back with them. Son of a gun, they all came back with three-page scripts in the morning. And that one girl, hers, was the one that just wiped everyone out. And I'm, uh, I'm going to wait and I'll put a link online when we get it posted. We're creating a YouTube channel for them. Because I have, I have told the story of, of that film probably a dozen times, and I am incapable of doing it without absolutely breaking into tears every time. So I'm not going to do it do, now, do it now, so do it now, do it now. I'm not going to do it on the show. I'm okay, so then the what was the primary emotion that you wanted to convey? I'm not going to tell you. Let me just, let me just put it this way. Um, the, the stories are all very interesting. Uh, one of the boys, his story was basically a tribute to... Um, to a teacher that he had had there in the camp, a uh, teacher from CARE uh, International. CARE manages the camp, CARE are the people that we worked with. And uh, the other guy was a really, he's, he's one of the older guys. He, he wrote a story that's sort of this amazing kind of twisted version on It's a Wonderful Life, a uh, rather kind of powerful metaphor about life generally. And the two girls basically wrote stories uh, that detail what they and others from Syria are struggling with, which is, how do you rebuild your sense of family and community when the old one has been destroyed forever? And then how versed were they in American filmmaking versus filmmaking from their region? Uh, not at all. Not at all. Had they seen uh, con well, any contemporary films? The first, or? when I did my little spiel. Transformers? The, well, yeah. When I did my little spiel the first day and I asked, I said, so just tell me some of your favorite movies. I just wanted to get a sense of what have they seen. The girls really had not seen any movies. Uh, they had no context, no framework to even talk about it. Uh, the guys, you know, you were getting everything from um, from Hitch, you know, which I thought was an interesting one. I was like, wow, that's interesting. Um, 
uh, Hitch, right? The, the Will, the Will Smith. That's the Will Smith one about yeah. the guy who yeah. Uh, yeah. gets laid a lot. Yeah. So everything from Hitch to Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and uh, and Thor, you know, is all sort of very obvious stuff. And so, um, and you know this. One of the things that no one, no one else in Lafka yet knows this. But one of the things that I'm going to pitch to the group at our next meeting, I'd like to try to curate and finance a um, a DVD library for the for these kids to have that uh, can then sort of be a resource to learn more about international movies. Because something like Bicycle Thieves or Rome Open City or the Apu Trilogy is going to mean so much more to them because there are aspects to those films that aren't just filmic to them. It's It connects to their lives. This is how do you tell a story when you are in a certain situation? How do you make the personal public? How do you communicate what's what what you have experienced in a way that others will be able to share your experience? Those are the things that they need to learn, and they need to know that those kinds of movies exist. How about the tech stuff? Did they have any idea what a camera was, what a shotgun oh, mic yeah. was? Oh yeah. Well, so, you know, okay. So here's the other interesting thing. So there's another NGO other than Care, and you know, coordinating all this stuff, and it's a camp of fifty-five thousand people broken up into you know three or four smaller communities. It's 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 just massive. So it's understandable that there are a lot of different groups doing a lot of different things in the camps that don't that the others don't know about. So there's another NGO called Mercy Corps. And Mercy Corps actually runs a couple of film classes in in the camp. And they're opening up a third one. And we found this out by sheer coincidence because one of our kids is part of one of those. So we hooked up with them as well and we're gonna try to coordinate all of this and and just, you know, the the thing that I that I, that I kept reminding everybody of is this. In Hollywood, um, we have literally thousands upon thousands of people who are unbelievably overeducated in filmmaking and have no stories to tell. And these kids do not have an education in filmmaking, but they have a wealth of stories to tell. And uh, they're the ones who should be telling stories. They should be telling stories, not the, you know, the hacks that run around here and the script in their back pocket and you know, waiting tables and doing whatever. These kids, they're the ones. They oh. have stories. Okay, most important question yes. as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Uh, the food. What was the best oh my gosh. ethnic food? Oh, my gosh. I had hummus morning, noon, and night. I'm not kidding is you. Is it different hummus than you'd have here? Is, is oh, it, but it's my just, gosh. It's just a chicken, garbanzo no, beans, no, and no, whatever. No, no, no. Olive oil and uh, no, pesto and whatever no, they're putting it. No, Best hummus I've ever had in my life. Are you let saying me, that because you're staring you're you. eating it in a desert so, with a no, bunch of kids Let me tell you. Camp? Let me tell you. The, the, this was the most magical moment of my life. Anyone that knows me knows I, I, I live for Middle Eastern food. I can't, I can't get enough. Kebabs and the whole, the whole thing. Cannot just, there, you, you know, Carnival. What do I usually do whenever I come out here? You call Carnival and say, I would like... Uh, That's would, right. You always order the same thing, too. Yeah, I do. I always order uh, hummus and labni, which is the labni. strained yogurt side, which is amazing. And then uh, they're, they're uh, chicken kebabs. It's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a Syrian uh, Lebanese restaurant over here, I'm just like a, two blocks away from you. So I go there every single time I come out here. Pick up food, take it home. So in any case, yes, no, this is the best hummus I've ever had in my life. And every morning... Uh, we we stayed at the Four Seasons in Amman and commuted every morning. So you stayed at the Four Seasons when the kids were well, <laughs> fifty five thousand kids. Look, and you say the Four there's Epic nowhere, Seasons. There's nowhere else to well, stay. Why just stay with them? Because there's nowhere else to stay, and it's against oh, the rules. Oh, okay. It's if against they, the rules. That's not true. It is. You're making it that is. up. No, I'm not. Why is actually. it against the rules? 
at literally at 5:30 everybody who is not we had badges right there are badges that the state department has to approve and the un has to approve and then the the uh the jordanian uh military has to approve and it's a pretty scary thing right it's not like you walk up to, it's not like going onto a studio lot here right where you walk up to security and you just flash your badge and they wave you on it's not that i mean you literally you pull the van up the door opens and a jordanian soldier literally stares at everybody's badge for a good three or four seconds, and then gives you, and then he gives you the stink eye, like you know, don't you dare do anything, and and then you go in. It's a, it's very militarized, and by five thirty every day, you need to be gone. If you're not, if you're not an actual refugee in the camp, you're not allowed to be in the camp. Okay, what does this have, have to do with hummus? So, well, you were mocking me for being in the Four Seasons. So, uh, and it's a beautiful Four Seasons, by the way. But you know what region you're in because to get into the Four Seasons, there's like a series of barricades that you have to wend around. And they have to check your, you know, the underside of the car and everything. I mean, they're very aware of the fact that they live in the, in the middle of, you know, terrorism central. So there's a lot of security everywhere. But uh, in any case, the, uh, the morning buffet, the breakfast buffet at the Four Seasons, you go down and I just thought... Are you kidding me? Are you seriously kidding me? Like hummus, just a vat of hummus and labni and labni balls and feta cheese and olive bread. I just, I, 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 I ate hummus every morning. But was it good because you were there? Or was no, it good it's it was amazing. Better? It's freaking amazing hummus. Right. It's a, the, the best hummus I've ever had. And there's a drink there, which I've never had before, but I'm going to figure out how to make it. It is called uh, lemon mint. And basically, it's lemonade with mint and ice crushed into kind of a slushy. And when you're working in 110 degree heat every day, this is the greatest thing ever created in human history. It's amazing. It's just wonderful. It's lemon mint everywhere. Everywhere in Jordan, you can get lemon mint. Is it like a a Slurpee? Like a 7-Eleven Slurpee? Kind of like like a lemonade, a minty lemonade Slurpee kind of. But it's so freaking good. It's so unbelievably is it good, good. Okay, is it good because it's good, or is it good because you are so goddamn thirsty because it's 110 degrees that you no, can drink camel piss and you would think it was Chardonnay? It's really good. Oh, it's okay. amazingly good. And then on the very last day, we went uh, down to Petra, and uh, I rode a camel and a mule and went up to the uh, – the uh, this is the Lawrence of Arabia connection – and went up to the very, very top where you can look out onto Wadi Araba, which is uh, where they shot Lawrence of Arabia. That so. must have been a moment for you. Oh, are you kidding me? I rode a camel, man, and a, and a mule. Now, is the camel squishy with the hump, or is it, is it it's like a hard hump? It's a hard hump, man. Okay. <laughs> it's not. It's not a. It's not a pleasant thing to ride. But you know, I got pictures of me on a camel, and uh, and that's pretty awesome. Were you ever nervous that the camel would fall? Because w- w- in, in the times that I've ridden a horse, I, I was never a hundred percent confident that the horse was not going to fall down. Or fall, no, no, the camel was never going to go down. And we were, and we had, you know, uh, a Bedouin escort. It, these were his camels, and. Uh, and, you know, he, he lives in a cave and was very proud of uh, how he had outfitted his cave and decked it out with a kitchen and the whole thing. And uh, he, he was quite proud of it. And he, and he has a Polish girlfriend that he's going to marry next month. Okay, one last question. Were you secretly working with the CIA this whole time? Is this whole thing Seriously, a pretense? don't even joke. Don't even joke about that. This, is, this, is, this was, you know, there were, there were a lot of sensitive things about this. When you, you, you know, you get a half a dozen lectures before even going into the camp about security, about don't do this, don't do that, don't bring this along. I mean, you're, you know, it's, it's serious stuff. It's, this is no messing around. It's not like, hey, come talk to the kids about movies. No, 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 no. It's like you get, you know, and we had, and there were a couple of couples uh, as well in the group, you know, and it's, it's explained 
don't hold hands, don't show public affection. That's, you know, that's a real taboo in this culture. I mean, you're, you're really sort of, you get a crash course on, on the fact that you're entering a very different world and the world that they grew up in, and it's the world that they have sort of reconstructed in the camp, and you, you, you have to respect that. I want to go. I will, you know, honestly, there are going to be more... Um, I don't know the, what I would teach them, but... The idea know. is to bring more groups in and to, to build on what we, we've done and to make it a regular thing. So I will, I don't know what that is, you know, how that's going to transpire in the future. I have a whole bunch of things that I'm going back and forth on with care to, uh, to you know, uh, the DVDs and everything else to try to further their, their ongoing education so that we don't sort of leave this hanging. But um, honestly, I'll, I'll get you on go. the list. I'll get you on the list. I have no idea what I would teach them, but I want to go. You know what? It's honestly, it's not, it's not even so much about what you would teach them as it is that you're just there. And you're giving them your time and your energy and your passion. And if you leave them with nothing but inspiration, then you've made a world of difference. I'm going. You're going to make me go. That's right. That'd be fun. It, it's, it was amazing. It was, it was truly life-changing. And, you know, this little girl, one of the guys in our group who wore a blazer every day, man. He wore a blazer every day oh, just, to be, just to be dignified and professional in the heat, no less. And little, his little sister, who was just the, the angel of this camp. She's five years old. She was everywhere in her little pink dress. She wound up being in two, <clears throat> being uh, basically the star of two of the movies. She was like just this angelic presence. Every time we turned around, there she is just walking around in her little pink dress. She well, was amazing. Was she the one you showed me the picture of? Yeah. So she was cute. Oh, she's just so this the sweetest thing. And my daughter now, just every time, she always she always says, asks to see the pictures. She wants to be can, her friend. Can you like pen pal them? Do they have internet access or anything? They have internet access. It's uh, very slow because they're in the middle of the desert. It's a sol- Basically, the camp is mostly solar power. The generator goes out about twice a day to conserve energy, which is really fun. You know, you're sitting there, you're getting ready to do a projection with the, you know, project something on the screen and... Indoor plumbing? Uh, Latrine? Ditch? Yes, kind of. Uh, most of the water, there are pumps uh, everywhere around the camp, and people go out and pump their water in the morning. It's not, a, it's not a great life, I'll be honest. I mean, they've been given the best opportunities they can, the way the camp is constructed, but it's... Now, who are, the, who, now, who are these people in the camp? Who are they? They Where do are, they come from? What is they, their status? They come from from uh, Alabama with the banjo on they their come knee. From, they come most, to be honest, uh, I'd say close to half of them come from uh, Aleppo and Homs, uh, and uh, but most of them. But are they are are, are they refugees from other countries? Who have no, 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 to no, go? Are no, they orphans? Are they, they who, are, who are they? They are all Syrians. Uh, they there are sixty percent of them are children. Uh, most are part of single parent households. Many are. Um, uh, unaccompanied, they don't have a family anymore, and uh, it's a it's a pretty dire situation. And the worst part of it, by the way, which uh, irks me that nobody even reports on this, the worst part of this is there are fifty five thousand people in that camp. But in June of last year, there was a terrorist attack at the border at the crossing checkpoint, and Jordan shut the border down. And the result now is that there are eighty five thousand people who are stuck in no man's land, just on the other side of the border, in the middle of the Syrian desert. And they and they and they're getting aid, but there there's no administration. They they're living in tents. They've been so for over a year, and uh, crime in the camp is rampant because it's not an organized camp. It's not an administrated camp with any kind of an you know military oversight or anything else. So you know they're mostly gangs running this rogue camp of eighty five thousand people living in tents in the Syrian desert, and nobody here is talking about this. Okay, it's so horrendous. what? It's a human. It's a it's a catastrophe. So what? What's the one thing that changed in terms of what you thought it was like there 
what you thought the political, social situation would be, what you thought was the solution to the problems they have. What did you think before you went, and now what do you think now in terms of either either a, a, a way through the issues for them, uh, a way through the political, social... Um, here's, here's, what I, here's what I took away that I didn't expect to take away, which is that these... These people are so, and I should have known this. You know, again, my mother was a refugee, and and I and I grew up with the the resilience that that f breeds in you. But um, I was astonished at how strong and resilient these people are. That's what I was amazed by. The I was I was uh, uh, you know two of the films we shot on the second day, two were shot the morning of the third day. Everything was edited the afternoon of the third day. I mean, it was whirlwind and. I was shooting uh, some some video and stills of the one film uh, while they were making it on uh, on day two, and the boys and the girls are educated at different times during the day. The boys are in the morning, girls in the afternoon, and so right as I'm shooting stills, the boys get out of class. They're all you know what eight, nine, ten years old. That 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 group, uh, maybe maybe kind of six, seven, eight, nine, uh, and. Uh, Next thing, I, they see me with a camera. I don't know what it is. Even some of the care people, they said to me, they said, the kids are really drawn to you. I said, why? Me? Wh why? Uh, and they said, no, they just sense something in you. And it's like, okay, great. My, my luck. But I'm swarmed by these young boys. Swarmed. And they are posing. And they're, you know, say, one more, one more photo. They just want to be photographed. They just want to have pictures taken of them posing with their bikes and, and their Nikes and, you know, all the, all the stuff. And they're just, they're kids, man. And you're and and I had to pinch myself to remind myself that they have just escaped from the greatest wartime tragedy of our era, because they're putting their arms around each other, they're just chumming it up, palling it up, you know, making mocking, mugging for the camera, posing with their bikes, posing with each with each other, and um, I, I just thought there's an unbelievable well of strength and resilience in these kids. Uh, they're they're amazing. They are really astonishing. And the Jordanian government's like, man. Whatever. Jordanian government is strapped. They and they they're not. So getting, it's not disinterest. It's the fact that there's. Oh no! The, the Jordanian government is really strapped. They're doing everything they can. They've taken in something like three hundred thousand uh, refugees, and one out of every six is in this camp, and uh, you know others are in other places in the country. But it's you know it's strapped. It's it's uh, it's doing everything it can, and um, it has it doesn't have the resources to do this. It already it, you know it's it has double digit unemployment itself. So it's a, it's you know it, they they need help they need help dealing with this. Well, Wade, sounds life changing. Had a great time. Affected a lot of people. It was amazing. It was amazing. And, and you ate a lot of hummus. I ate so much hummus. It was amazing. All right, let's get into DVDs as long as we're at it, because I've spent a week uh, trying to catch up here. So uh, got a whole bunch of uh, let me let me let me roll through some of these things and. Um, this is, you know, this is stuff that's actually uh, that we should have covered some time back, and just haven't had the time to do it. So uh, we've got a few. Uh, these are things from Indie Picks, from uh, Candy Factory, from the Orc, from the the Orchard. Um, these are, you know, movies that are that are a lot of them are DVDR, manufacture on demand, and some interesting little stories here that are that are worth uh, picking up because otherwise you're just never going to know that some of these indie films even exist and. Uh, they they come out without a whole lot of uh, promotion every month, but these are these are really solid libraries, and there's some good little indie stuff worth discovering. So, um, La Vie de Jean Marie is uh, a little independent film that is is being released by Indie Picks, uh, made uh, obviously uh, 
for like three or four dollars, and it's a real. It's like a. It's a. It's a very very raw kind of indie film set in the French Pyrenees. Uh, made with very little money and uh, very little, very few resources. It really kind of on the edge, just like a lot of American indie films. Uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful slice of life, and uh, it, it tells a, a very, very moving story and kind of, it almost has an epic scale on, a, on what, you know, Marinaire would call a peanut, an epic on a peanut. It has an epic emotional scale, but it's very, very intimate. Uh, really quite a, quite a, Quite an impressive little movie by this director, Peter Van Houten. It's called uh, La Vie de Jean-Marie, and it was uh, it was entered in competition at the Rotterdam Festival, which uh, I know a couple of people who had films at Rotterdam. It's a very, very good festival. Uh, also from Indie Picks, we have Millie and the Lords by Jenica Carmona. Uh, this is uh, this was at the uh, LA Internet uh, at the LAFF, the LA Film Festival, which we have here. And uh, this was financed, I believe, through HBO, or else it was screened as part of HBO Latino. Uh, in any case, it's about a uh, Puerto Rican woman in Spanish Harlem who's sort of trying to get her life together and, you know, move beyond the, the circumstances into which she's been trapped. And uh, she winds up uh, hooking up with uh, Mateo. Who uh, is organ- who's in with this Puerto Rican paramilitary group? And there's a really interesting, you know, it's it's an interesting kind of uh, collision of opposites and people from different worlds. Millie and the Lords is what it's called. It's a it's a good another good little solid indie film. And then we have Behind the Mask by Eric S. Dow. The Batman Dead End Story is the subheading on this, and uh, this is about Sandy Calora who is a commercial director, and about a decade ago, he decided he was going to make a Batman short. And this is apparently, according to them, and I don't know if this is true, because there's a lot of Star Trek films that I think would rival this, but allegedly, this is the biggest fan film ever made. And uh, it's quite impressive. Uh, So Behind the Mask... The Batman Dead End Story. This is by Eric S. Dow. Uh, really worth checking out. I don't. I'm not a huge fan of fan films, but I do find them to be um, an interesting phenomenon. I love Star Trek fan films, especially the really good ones. You know why? Because they're really good, but they're just short of actually being like, like pro Star Trek good. The production values in some of them blow my mind. It's true, but the acting isn't quite there. Oh no, no, no! Because they all have to cast themselves. They'll occasionally get a real actor or two. Who'll throw them a bone and do them a favor well, and like, show up? Uh, you know, Nichelle Nichols does them. Yeah, uh, Chekhov does it. Yeah, but then they'll sort of put themselves in it, and you'll realize, oh, maybe you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Not a good idea. So, uh, also, Candy Factory has a whole bunch of uh, interesting movies. Psychoanalysis was uh, at festivals all over the place. Uh, this is um, about a guy who is a suicide prevention psychologist who has a whole bunch of his clients uh, or patients commit suicide one right after the other. And um, there's a thriller twist to this, which I, I, there's nothing else I can tell you about it other than the fact that it's, uh, it's pretty good. It's a, it's a preposterous premise that goes into an interesting place. So I give them credit for that. Candy Factory is releasing that one. Also from Candy Factory, Game Changers. Uh, interesting little film about a you know it's kind of a kind of a satire of uh, of our sports culture, which is about a couple of guys who are uh, you know real big in uh, in in things like fantasy football and all that kind of stuff, 
and uh, they work for an IT company, and uh, you know it's all sort of about how they the gaming is a metaphor for their lives and their their self esteem and what they need to do to get out of their dead end lives. It's uh, it's okay, uh, more ambitious than it really is particularly good. Also, a big festival uh, favorite was the wedding party, again from Candy Factory. Uh, this is this is interesting not because it's particularly good but because it's all shot in a single take and when you have a low budget film that shoots the and it's you know it's all things that happen at a wedding party and there's a you know the 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 drama of the interpersonal relationships and who's screwing whom and whatnot so there's there's a you know all that politics isn't particularly interesting but the fact that they shot this thing widescreen like cinemascope widescreen and then in a single take Pretty ambitious for a film of this level, and uh, that I found to be pretty interesting. They really rehearsed the daylights out of it. So that's an interesting exercise more than it is a particularly good film. Uh, That's called uh, The Wedding Party. And then the last three from uh, Candy Factory, Wichita, is a uh, a, a pretty well-done psychological thriller. I wish they had had a bigger budget because it would have been a lot better. Um, but it, it, for something that kind of follows a lot of the old tropes about, you know, uh, people stuck in the mountains and, uh, you know, all of the, the kind of the contrivances about this mass killer. And there's all this kind of stuff going on here that, that really is very genre familiar, but, uh, it's well done, well directed, uh, and for next to no money. And then last two, Life of Significant Soil, um, really good performances here. Uh, basically about a couple that's trying to deal with the, you know, the, the deterioration of their relationship. And uh, it's all shot in a very, very small and enclosed space. It doesn't have much of a story, but it is a nice little 71-minute tour de force for a couple of very talented actors who will probably go on to much bigger and better things. And then uh, Apocalypse Child, a Maria and Monster show. Uh, wasn't terribly f- uh, fond of this, Um but it's because it's a little bit of an odd thing. The idea here is that you've got this uh, surfer from the Philippines who believes that he is the son of Coppola, who had an affair when he was making Apocalypse Now. And uh, that's a bit of a, you know, you, you, you sort of, uh, like if you're not a fan of Apocalypse Now, if you're not sort of invested in that backstory, this just really starts to feel kind of pretentious. Um, Who would not be a fan of Apocalypse Now? Well, but you know what I'm saying. It's like it, the, if you're not buying the backstory, then the rest of this is just sort of a silly movie. By the way, John Hurd died. I know. I found that out on my way over today. Martin Landau, John Hurd. Who was Real the other loss. One? Real loss this week. Somebody else died a couple days ago. I forgot. Yeah, who. I can't remember. Oh, George Romero. That's right, George Romero. I did. I had to do a thing on the radio for George Romero. You know, I, I had rewatched uh, because I'm a nerd. I went back and I just rewatched the one scene. The Catch Your Dreams scene from Tucker. Yes. Right? Yes. I never. I knew if I got too close to people, I would catch right. your dreams. Yeah. And uh, oh, he, he, you know what? He's one of those guys where you know what? He was such. He was so. <laughs> he was such a dorky Jew-looking guy that you never really. But he was cool. Like yeah. you look at the detail, even in that one scene. Yeah. The way his mouth and his eyes, you you really get to sense. You you get a sense of how difficult it is to be a great actor and the detail that's involved that we take for granted. You know, uh, I. By was, the way, I'm a dorky, ugly Jew too. So I'm just saying that so, as another dorky, ugly Jew, I'm well, feeling Martin Landau. Martin Landau. Let me let me just say something about Martin Landau. First, He's, let me first let me say something about John Hurd. John Hurd was one of the most natural, effortless actors of our generation, of the last 50 years. 
And he, he kind of came of age in the 80s, and he was always a staple through the 80s, through the 90s, through the early, early and mid-2000s, I mean, last decade and a half. He never stopped working. He never stopped working. John Hurt always worked. And he never became a star. He never a became character actor, a great character actor. Great character actor. He, he never became even a household name, but he was a guy that always showed up in movies, even if it was something like Home Alone. And uh, Heaven Help Us, you know, was one that he, I thought he was particularly good in as a priest. Uh, he always showed up. He always gave it his all. He always made it look so much easier than it really was. He made every movie better. And uh, I, it, it's sad to me that he never got an Oscar nomination. He deserved it several times. But, uh, you know, a really great actor, a really, really great career, and he will be well-remembered. He really will. Martin Landau, just a legend, truly a legend. And, you know, his he was mainly a TV actor, we forget. I mean, he made a few things, North by Northwest, where he played heavies because he had, you know, he had the dark eyes and he had those lips. And he was very, you know, he had those, he had kind of extreme features that, that lent him to being a, memor a memorable villain. And uh, so that's kind of what he played. And he, he was a decent character actor for a bit there. And then he went into television, Mission Impossible, Space 1999, where he was amazing. But Tucker is when everybody rediscovered him. He got older, he got cooler, and he just, he was able to bring it in all these. And, and that's, if it weren't for Tucker, he wouldn't have wound up in Ed Wood, you know. Well, a lot of these actors, and Martin Landau especially, they get better as they get older. They their their lines in their face. Yeah. They 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 project this feeling that they've been through things. Yep. Right. So there's some depth even to, just to their look. And yep. so once Landau got to that place, then he really took off. Because then you because then you got to really appreciate again, like we said before, the detail that he brings to his performances, which maybe was never appreciated when he was you know Commander Koenig, but you did appreciate in Tucker and Ed Wood and Crimes and Misdemeanors. Uh, he was really cool. I, I I really feel like he never quite, even though he won an Oscar, I feel like he never quite got the credit for it because he was a yeah. great he was a great teacher. He was one of the great acting teachers. Yeah, you know, and people don't remember that. No, uh, he was he was, and he was very close friends with uh, a good friend of ours, um, who uh, who uh, Adrian Zweibach, who uh, her husband was Martin Zweibach, recently passed. Martin, great screenwriter and and writer for Kung Fu, and Adrian had been. Uh, um, a, a, in, she'd been a, a film, uh, a, an, an acting student along with Martin Landau. They were lifelong friends, came from the same group of actors. And Adrian wound up not acting so much professionally. She wound up becoming Peckinpah's personal assistant. A lot of stories there. And, uh, but I remember after Adrian passed, uh, that's where I met Martin Landau at the funeral. And he was just the nicest, most sweet, unassuming, self-deprecating man imaginable. And I just, I, it's, he, he will really be missed. He's awesome. Yeah. So a uh, few films real quickly from The Orchard. Uh, After the Reality, which is uh, an okay film with Matthew Morrison playing a guy who's uh, going on to a dating show to try to put his life together, which doesn't sound like it makes much sense. But it takes an interesting turn, and, and it's, a, it's a decent little indie. Uh, Donald Cried was uh, part of New Director's New Films 2016, uh, it was, you know, an AFI Fest and a South by Southwest Film Festival uh, pick. Um, this, we've seen this movie before. This is about a guy from, you know, working class neighborhood who becomes a, a big, uh, big Wall Street guy and then has to go home when tragedy strikes and it becomes, you know, this big uh, allegorical trip through all the, the lost meaning in his life. Uh, we've seen that movie before. This one isn't particularly new, but it's, uh, you know, there's a certain indie flavor to it that some people might connect to. The Sweet Life. Uh, I'm going to recommend The Sweet Life with Chris Messina and Abigail Spencer just because 
I am such a huge fan of Chris Messina. Uh, talking about actors like John Hurd that never get enough credit, Chris Messina is one of those actors. He, he is so hardworking. He shows up in so many indies. Every once in a while, he'll show up in a big studio film, take a payday. You've seen him. You don't know his name, but you always know, wow, he brings it. That guy is so, he's so good. And the indies that he chooses are always really interesting because he does really, really intense character stuff. Uh, and here, it's just about a couple of people who meet, and uh, they are going, oh gosh, there's just so much to give away here. Uh, anyway, they, they, they have a very unusual relationship, and they're going to do something together, kind of a very historic thing. And uh, it is a really interesting relationship movie, and, and Chris Messina has made a number of these in the past, and he continues to make them, and I really applaud him because he, he seems to be drawn to movies where there are unusual emotions, and uh, it really, really quite good. Uh, just anything that Chris Messina is in is absolutely worth checking out. Uh, three other uh, uh, films from The Orchard, AWOL, uh, which is, you know, uh, another one of these, I got to make my way out of the out of the dead end, uh, my dead end origins. You know, I come from Pennsylvania. I'm, I've grown up in, uh, you know, a real working class environment, and it's uh, there's no future to it. And it is again how that leads to a romance. Uh, that's a that's a I, I don't you know it's a lesbian romance, but it's really a crossover film. I don't want to marginalize it by saying it's an LGBT movie because it's not. It's a it, it's a it you know it's a much more intimate character thing. And then the last two, Patchwork, not a fan. Uh, this is a, you know, this is kind of a, it's a nasty human centipede type horror film. If you like that sort of stuff, Patchwork, it'll be your kind of thing. It's not my kind of thing. Don't like it. And uh, Long Nights, Short Mornings is, uh, is you know, another relationship drama. It's okay. It's kind of, you know, two people one night. It doesn't really, it didn't really uh, work for me, but it might for somebody. So those are the Orchard films. And then lastly, I'll just go through this real quickly. Uncorked Entertainment sent us a bunch of stuff. Uh, the Shelter with Michael Pere, which is, you know, decent little, uh, decent little thriller. Um, there's one here that Mark's going to love. Reelers, which is a zombie movie that just, it's, <laughs> It's, a, it's another zombie movie. If you need another zombie movie, that's yours. If you don't, don't do it. Uh, and then uh, Abby Grace, which is a, a horror film that's it's adequately well done. It's one of those kid horror movies. These are the two I'm gonna really going to recommend from the Uncorked Entertainment Group. Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. This is a documentary about the Fantastic Four film that Roger Corman was going to make a million years ago, decades ago that everyone has seen bits of on, on YouTube and which looks so terrible. And it would have been so terrible. Uh, but it was not made for creative reasons. It was made because he was going to lose the... Uh, yeah. He was going to lose the rights to the characters, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. What a fascinating story this is. So he was going to lose the rights to the character unless he made a film by such and such a date. Isn't it's the it? only Roger Corman film that never got released. Dude, it's, it's, it's a fascinating story. It really is a fascinating story. And I love that they put all the characters on the cover because you just look at that and you go, yep, that looks like junk. That looks terrible. That looks terrible. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, seriously, come on, right? The costumes alone, what do what, what, they sew those together in 10 seconds? And then the last of the uncorked uh, films is Krampus Unleashed. Krampus. Naughty or Didn't nice. did some of his vote He's for Krampus for as you. best actor? At the yes, LA we did. We sure did. At, the, at Lafka? Uh, Krampus is the best. Uh, so anyway, uh, you, you, honestly, if you... 
it just doesn't get any better than Krampus. It's like the worst movie movie demon ever, the worst makeup ever. It's hysterical. Uh, there's an audio commentary and a featurette here, which I didn't even bother with because it's just Krampus. He's got horns and he's terrible. It's bad makeup. It's great. I Krampus it. is awesome. Do not mess with Krampus. Don't mess with Krampus. Don't mess with Krampus. All right. Uh, we have actual films people care about, Wade. Let's do it. If you're done with all the other junk. Let's do it. We're done with the junk. Now we can get on suspense. Actually, we're not tamed. done. With, we're not done with the junk yet. Oh uh, well. Because we have to talk about Ghost in the Shell. Oh my goodness. So this is the uh, Scarlett Johansson Ghost in the Shell, which is just a big, loud, messy, misbegotten, I don't know what the hell they're thinking on this one. You know what it is? It's just somehow when you make these trends, you know, I, I just don't know that, you know, I mean, the, the Matrix did it, but somehow I just think that when, you, when, um, when Americans remake these big Japanese anime, manga, whatevers, yeah. they forget that there's a lot going on up here, as I point oh. to my head, which you can't see on a podcast. Mm. There's a lot going on up there. Right, but the American filmmakers and the studios—they just think it's all about the visuals. Yeah, you know, so they yeah. get a, they they get some a hot American actress, Scarlett Johansson, and some music video director, and some or somebody, music video yeah. director, and they throw a lot of uh, they throw a lot of ones and zeros at it, but it's got no heart. Yeah. So this thing is just it is just it completely eliminated everything that the source material was about. Totally tone deaf. Totally empty. I, 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 it was so loud, I actually fell asleep. Now, how can something <laughs> be so loud that you fall asleep? Because when something is so relentlessly loud and annoying for that long, you, you, just, you just turn off your brain. Yeah, I hear you. But it's 4K, so it looks great. Well, okay, there we go. You know, so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go out on the line here, and uh, I, I've, been, I've taken a lot of heat for just being a relentless Malik fanboy and apologist for everything that he's done since he came back to filmmaking, starting with Thin Red Line. And uh, some people just, they, they kind of, you know, they thought, okay, now it's getting way too esoteric. Now this is just, now now you're really just crawling up your own colon and you're just, you're just, uh, that's not, that, that makes no sense. Song to Song has gotten absolutely blistered. And I think people have been way too cruel and dismissive of it. And, and Malik, by the way, has a new film. He's come much, he, he's coming back to linearity, to scripting things, to, you know, he's getting off of the, the improvised camera, improvised acting, change the script every day thing that he's been doing for a few years. And people are like, okay, let's see what you have to do. And that's, I'm looking forward to that too. But I still think Song to Song is a very, very good film. Well, let me, let me tell you something. Malik made better films when he wasn't making films. Because he, it was all about the legacy, right, and the three yeah. films he had but done. He's, but he's trying to work out things, some very personal things, and I can I, pr I appreciate what he's doing. And Song to Song is really, really a very interesting movie if you allow yourself to sort of drift with it. Uh, yes, it you know it's it, Ryan Gosling's first film released after La La Land. A lot of people were not ready to see him in something sort of this amorphous, but I quite like it. So Ryan Gosling is a musician. Michael Fassbender is a music producer. And they have this difficult relationship with uh, Rooney Mara kind of caught between them. And Natalie Portman shows up in this as well, in a relatively small part, but even though she's given, you know, a w top billing here, which is kind of unusual. But the whole thing is set in Austin. It's the only movie that he's ever made in his hometown completely, shot around the, the music festival with a lot of actual music figures like Iggy Pop and others who, who give interviews, very sort of telling and, and, uh, and revealing interviews on camera. And that's all intercut with this backstage story of these people and their, their music industry travails. 
And again, it's about relationships, it's about life, it's about struggles, and it's very dreamlike. And uh, like Bob Kohler thinks it's the worst film of the year. I don't think it's the best film of the year. It's probably not going to wind up in my top ten. But I do think that if you look at it as a personal essay from Malick in the same vein as his previous films, if you're not sick of his personal essays, there's a lot to be gleaned here. And it's the first 4K Malick film. Give it some props for that. But I think also because the... Drop my glasses. I think because the bar has been so lowered with Malik now in his little run, yeah, it'll be that it'll when be something again. gives you a little bit of uh, a little bit of meat, a little bit of substance, you, you you overpraise it. Maybe. Anyway, Lubetsky in 4K is uh, is amazing, and uh, you know the don't go for this for the extras. There's really no no extras of note here, but my goodness, the uh, it, it really is gorgeous. Just gorgeous to look at. Wait, I don't know what to make of Kong Skull Island. I mean, I, I, I guess, I guess, I, I, I watched this on the plane. In, in, in the final analysis, it's, it's good enough, but I, I, it, it feels a little like messy studio product to me. Like, it's no. Here, here's what's going on. So the problem here is that we have a lot of studios now who are desperate for franchises. They see what's going on with, uh, you know. With the, with the Avengers and 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 with Pirates of the Caribbean and so they're they're all trying to find franchises to ride, and Warner Brothers has DC. They don't really have anything else, and so all they're trying to do here is kind of the same thing that Universal is doing or trying to or, do or trying to do, which is to say, what other things do we have in the uh, in the in the library in the vaults that we can that we can squeeze every last drop of blood out of and, and try to make a franchise at least for a few years because that you know Warner Brothers lose when Harry Potter came to an end I'm sorry but you know uh, the, the 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 new one with the Fantastic Beasts yeah, that, that's it not, didn't really fill no, the void no it didn't fill the void that's not going to become a new thing so they you know they, they don't have the Lord of the Rings anymore they don't have uh, Harry Potter anymore they only have the DC stuff which is you know is on life support but Wonder Woman put it back on the track by the way, you heard Matt is is apparently, and and I'm I'm sure I'm not going to get a straight answer on this, but Matt may he's he's going to use Ben Affleck obviously for the in the Batman movie, but junking Ben Affleck's script, and Warner is now even considering suggesting that that movie kill off Ben Affleck's Batman so they can cast somebody else because nobody wants because Ben Affleck's going to be you know fifty something soon. He's and, like forty four, I think. Or yeah. 45, so, 44. so by the you know, so he'll by the time you know Justice League comes out, he's pushing fifty. Everybody else in the DC in in the the Justice League group, they're all twenties and thirties. Well, the thing is that when he, when you can't when have Frank, a sixty five year old Batman. But when, when when Frank Miller did his uh, Dark Knight Returns, whatever it was called, wasn't Batman like fifty? Oh yeah, that's gonna that's gonna that, that's and, really gonna fly with audiences. Exactly. That's gonna fly. Yeah. I wish they would. In do fact, that. look, let's you know bring, what worked with Logan? Let's bring George Clooney back to play it. Look, Logan. Look, uh, uh, Logan. Yeah. You know, what's his name? Is fifty years old? Love I'm him, just saying. Jackman. Warner Brothers is well. Here's that way. The, well, here's the thing. They're gonna have, they're gonna start having a problem with this with like, people like Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. is, is, is well into his 50s now. Oh, yeah. And he still looks great. He's and in he's my still... graduating class. He's my age. He's... And I'm not well into my 50s. I'm 47. What? No. Yes. I, yes. But, I mean, he's, he, he's going to have to start. Sure. I mean, they're going to have to start figuring out what to do with yeah. Iron Man. Yeah. True. True. And some of these other ones. Like even, uh, what's his name? Tom Holland. You know, yes, he looks young, but he's like 21, I think. So when yeah. you're three films in and he's suddenly 26... Yeah, you know, and then he's got to be in the Avengers films and the Spider-Man films and whatever. Yeah, you know, they got to start thinking about. They uh, got to start figuring it out. I know, I know. So anyway, I'm not sure they even saw the this lasting for like 30 years. Here's the problem with Kong's, and the problem with Kong Skull Island is that Kong is like 47. So by the time, 
Never mind. Okay. Are you, so, are you putting on a casting call for younger Kong? So 4K. Uh, how does Kong look in 4K? Uh, the the CGI holds up incredibly well. I have to say, I watched this on the plane, uh, and uh, uh, compared with the 4K, it's just it's it's night and day. So, um, by the way, Emirates, great airline. <laughs> I just want to say, amazing airline. Are the are the coach seats bigger than regular coach seats on yes. regular airlines? Yes. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but it, but those yeah. are long haul flights. It's got to be like ten thousand dollars a seat. Let me let me let me let me just say this. I would rather spend sixteen hours in coach uh, on Emirates on an Airbus three hundred and eighty than to spend ninety minutes in business on a Delta flight going to Vegas. Oh hell yeah! Any day. That is the that is the worst. Those, those I I've flown those Airbus three hundred and eighty to to Paris, and I got to tell you, those are cool planes. They are. You know what I like best? It, when you you know like on the old seven forty sevens that had the upstairs thing, it was that little kind of st- spiral staircase, that little rickety spiral staircase that took you up there. On the Airbus three hundred and eighty, the staircase is a freaking staircase. Oh, yeah. It's like you're on a luxury cruise liner. And it has a velvet rope at the bottom. I saw it. And, yes. and, and at the top, there's a there's a wet bar, as if to say, you're not allowed near near this. This is this is for special people. I'm sorry. You know what? You know, nine and a half hours in, in, into the flights that I've taken on yeah. Airbus 380s, I go up the damn thing. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I'm so bored. You know what are you gonna do? You violate the velvet rope. But here's the thing: Air France food is is, is notoriously pretty good. Oh, that's Air France great. food. How is uh, Emirates food? Pretty great. Did you have hummus? No, they didn't serve hummus, but it was really great. It was really good. Very, very good. What do you do for – here's the thing. You know, I, I'm starting to have a – I know we're totally wasting time yeah. today. It's I'm right. starting to have a problem flying 11 hours to get to Paris. Mm-hmm. 16 – like, and, and you, you, you can't pull over to the side of the road if something is wrong with your plane. True. It's just weird. Let me tell you what my last day was like. Well, first, let me, let me do Fate, <laughs> Fate of the Furious. Okay, Fate of the Furious. We're getting terrible. nothing accomplished. Fate of, the, Fate of the Furious, terrible. It's on 4K. Uh, it, it looks great on 4K, uh, you know. But but this franchise is 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 not only jumped the shark. It's like it's it's jumped an entire ocean of sharks. Um, it's it's now become Freddy and Jason in space. It's so it really has. It's so true. Or Moonraker, where like suddenly James Bond's just, on the moon. Yeah, you you just when you when you consider where it began and where it winds up, you're like, wait a minute, wasn't this originally about people just who soup up cars and an undercover cop trying to bring down? Wasn't you this can't a, do that. No, these have like, to play. When did they become like international super spies? Because they have to play internationally, and oh the only way to gosh. do that is, is, is to give people internationally stuff that only we can do, which it's, is CGI spectacle like nobody else. It's the, just the, the broader these films have to play, right? The bigger they have to be. It's the dumber just, they have to be. It's just so insanely ridiculous. Uh, I love it. It, it really is. It's just, it's completely mad. Uh, but anyway, uh, The Rock is terrific in this. Dwayne Johnson really is the, he's the new guy. It's not even about Vin Diesel anymore. It's about Dwayne Johnson. He he holds this franchise down now. He came in, he inherited it. Uh, the, the car stunts, I don't really much care for because it's all CGI anyway. I, I know that, so it doesn't make it special. But in any case, uh, you, do, you do have extras on this. The uh, the bonus features, especially on the 4K, are rather copious, and uh, they include you know mostly featurette stuff. There's a feature commentary with F. Gary Gray, and I'm really happy that he's back in the saddle. Um, he's a very very good director. Should be doing even better stuff. Uh, it's a good commentary, uh, and I, I hope that this movie is a stepping stone for F. Gary Gray to, to go on and, I and like make him. more. Yeah, he he needs to make m- better, more serious films. Yep, I agree. Yeah. 
Unforgettable is interesting because it was uh, directed by Denise Denovi. Oh, yes. Uh, Long-time producer. producer. That's yeah. right. And if you want to know what kind of director Denise Denovi is, she actually manages to make Katherine Heigl uh, an, uh, a, Acceptable? a serviceable, uh, yeah. serviceable performer. Yeah. Because everybody knows that she has the worst reputation in Hollywood. Everybody hates her. You just look at her and you can yep. see why everybody hates her. But uh, here she's really not that bad. Uh, you know, she's her marriage is ending to the ex-husband, and you know the ex-husband's engaged to Rosario Dawson, and it sort of spirals out from there. And then she plays uh, uh, Catherine plays this really evil person. So uh, a little fatal attraction e. But um, yeah, I mean this thing it went nowhere in the box office because you know it's ultimately Catherine Heigland. She, she's not a name that sells anything except for pain. Not anymore. She could, it, she should go back to TV. She really should. I know she doesn't want to, but she should. Oh, she should because that's where she belongs. Um, anyway, so unforgettable. You know what? It's a good uh, you know you know bottle of Chardonnay and popcorn, girls' night kind of a rental. Yeah. Otherwise, I would uh, pass. All right. Uh, I got a couple of indies here, both directed by women, which are worth uh, a, a quick mention. Uh, these kind of go under the radar, but I do want to point them out. IFC Midnight releasing a movie called American Fable, directed by Anne Hamilton, who has a wonderful eye, and I hope somebody gives her a bigger budget because she really, really is has a great command of images and her, her setups and... She's a very skilled director. Uh, this takes place in the 1980s. It's about a farm girl who's kind of, you know, going through the, the, the crisis of the moment and finds a man hiding in the family silo. And, it's an, and, and that makes for a very interesting conflict. And that goes in some very, very unexpected places and is a great excuse for some really terrific directing. Uh, the MPI is releasing this. This was originally released theatrically by IFC Midnight. And Hamilton's American Fable. Definitely check that one out. And then there is also Trust Fund, uh, written and directed by Sandra Martin, which is a kind of a, this reminded me a little bit of uh, Music Box, the oh, uh, Costa yeah, Gavras thing. thing. Yeah, not because it's about, you know, the Holocaust or anything like that, but it's uh, the, the, the dynamic of um, a woman who finds that uh, there's a secret related to her father and uh, that goes into a different place that leads into kind of a very different narrative thread. But a lot of the emotional texture to it reminded me, it just reminded me of Jessica Lange's performance in a lot of very kind of unusual ways. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, you know, the father doesn't turn out being a bad guy. I'm not going to give anything away. I mean, it's, it's a different father-daughter relationship, but the, the, some of the some similar dynamics that, uh, that reminded me of the other film. And... Um, it also very, you know, pertains very, very much to today. The idea of trust funds is something that has become much more integrated into this current generation than previous generations, especially as you know, jobs are so hard to come by. So um, anyway, Jessica Roth uh, is very, very good in this, as is Kevin Kilner, not to be confused with Kevin Klein. His name looks very similar when you just give, a gl give it a glance, so that's called Trust Fund. Check that out. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Uh, the Promise, the, uh, boy, I really, did you see The Promise? You know, I did not see The Promise, <clears throat> even though I'm very uh, deeply interested in the subject matter. Okay, the so, look, the Armenian Genocide really deserves a great movie. There have been a few European films so far that have uh, tried to sort of deal with it. The first one, of course, was the uh, was Adam McGoyan's film, uh, Ararat, m quite a number of years ago now. Uh, Terry George was uh, recruited to do this, to direct this. Terry George co-wrote this with Robin Swicord, who's a great screenwriter, obviously, we all know that. 
and then directed Terry George, of course, you know, Hotel Rwanda, Hotel Rwanda right? A terrific Irish writer director. Um, in the name of the father, co-writer of that with uh, Jim Sheridan. Uh, really, this is his material. If you're going to get a guy who has the political conscience to really humanize uh, such a great tragedy and kind of shine a spotlight on a part of it, Terry George is your guy. Unfortunately, this is just a misbegotten movie through and through. And I and I want to recommend that people see it just because of the history, but it it just it it falls short dramatically and narratively. Oscar Isaac and Christian Bale uh, co-star along with Charlotte Lebon, who's quite amazing. She's actually better than both of them. Um, but the the problem with this is this: Kirk Kerkorian financed this as a passion project. Kirk Kerkorian, of course, the Las Vegas casino magnate who once owned MGM and basically destroyed it. Not a popular guy in Hollywood. He owned MGM twice, I think. Didn't he? Didn't he buy MGM yeah, twice? Yeah, he bought it again. He bought it again and uh, pillaged the brand to be able to use in Vegas. Kerkorian, of course, being Armenian, wanted to tell this story, wanted to tell any story about the Armenian genocide, and he threw an enormous amount of money at this movie, didn't care if he ever saw it back, and he, of course, died before the movie was finished and released. So uh, this is kind of like his swan song, and I get that. But on a certain level, because there was not more uh, rigorous artistic attention to product, independent of let's just get this story out, I think it winds up being flabby and a bit over-melodramatic, and that's just too bad. But it's still worth seeing. And then a real interesting little indie here, a Displacement which is a good example of how to do a, a cool science fiction film on, on a limited budget. So you got this uh, physics student who has suffered some tremendous tragedy and loss in her life. And at the same time, she has uh, short-term memory loss, and uh, she's trying to deal with some kind of this, this really, this, which I, the science of it makes no sense, but... She, at least it didn't make any sense to me, but she's trying to deal with it like a, like a, uh, a time anomaly. And um, all of this is wrapped up in a surprisingly compelling little drama that doesn't really stretch credibility as much as m even bigger studio films. And uh, I, I, it reminds me a little bit of what was the science fiction film that, uh, that set everybody Coward. on fire, set in, that was set in the garage, just the two guys in the garage? Oh, uh, uh, safety primer, primer, oh, primer, primer, right? Kind of like Primer a little bit. That's good. Nothing wrong with yeah. that. It sort, of, it sort of does some of the same things that Primer did very, very well. So uh, it's been at a lot of festivals. It's really worth checking out. Displacement. Very, very, very clever. Very, very smart. And, uh, Mark, let's talk a little a moment about Dunkirk. Let's do that. Okay. Uh, did you see Dunkirk yet? I did not. Okay. Did you know why? Why? Because I have to be at work. I have to be up for... I have to, oh, let me try that again. I have to wake up at 4.20 in the morning to get to work. So when a film screens at night, I'm not going. Okay, I hear you. So here's my deal. Uh, I saw Dunkirk. Walked in. Wanted to love it. Really wanted to love it. Because I love the trailer. Because I know the history. I'm very familiar with it. Like the old original film Dunkirk. I love Mrs. Miniver, which connects to Dunkirk. Uh, I, I, f half an hour in, I thought, oh my gosh, this thing's going to sweep the Oscars. This is amazing. 40 minutes in, I was thinking, best picture, guaranteed. Uh, by the time we get about about an hour, we get an hour in, uh, I'm feeling it, man. And I'm thinking, no, no, Emperor's New Clothes, this is, this, is, this is not paying off. It started well, started with a bang. This is not really going anywhere, is it? It's just going to be more of the same. 
It's not taking me to that emotional place. Like when I was talking to the kids, a movie is a difficult journey, and the end of that journey is truth. And this starts off that journey, and then you know what? It just kind of sits down and has a glass of milk, and it doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't end its journey. Really? And that is so upsetting to me. Now, I, I realize I'm the odd man out. Everybody else is saying masterpiece, you know, shoe in best picture, best film of the year, IMAX, incredible. I get it. But, but, but I was even talking to Justin afterwards, and Justin had seen it his second time. And I said, really, you love it that much? He goes, oh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's very strong. And I said, yeah, but it, it kind of wants to be thin red line. And he says, oh, that's a very high bar. I said, but yeah, but that's the bar. I know it's a high bar, but that's the bar. You're making an impressionistic war film. That's your bar, is the thin red line. And if you're not going to meet that bar, you're, you're, you're kind of wasting my time, to be honest. I mean, that's, that's where I expect these movies to go. War is the pinnacle of human experience in the best and the worst ways. It's when you either rise to the occasion and you achieve something great and you save humanity, or you, you throw in the towel and, and you just say, this is my limit. I mean, if you're not going to push me to that emotional place... I don't want to see a PG-13 recreation of, event, of an event that, that, that was the crowning achievement, that was the life moment for an entire culture, for an entire island. This was their do-or-die moment, if I don't feel that do-or-die moment. And Thin Red Line gets me there because Malick is a director who thinks like a philosopher. Christopher Nolan is a director who thinks like a photographer. And his script is lacking. I have to say, that's, that's just my read on it. And now, I, I'm the odd man out, but the script is lacking. Did, did his brother co-write it? No. That's part of the problem. And, and, and I always thought, oh, thank goodness, we're not going to get one of these convoluted, you know, twisty-turny things that his brother always creates. And now I kind of, I'm thinking, I wish his brother had kind of thrown, a, thrown, a, thrown him a, 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 you know, a, a life preserver. Um, that brings me to this film. There's another Dunkirk movie from this year, uh, from earlier this year. And like Mrs. Miniver, it finds meaning in the event at the periphery, as these movies often do. Again, Lawrence of Arabia, with which we started the show, the music, is about World War I. But as they say in the movie, it's a sideshow of a sideshow. And yet it's the greatest World War I movie ever made. And you're never in France, and you're never in the trenches. And there's, you know, all those classic World War I tropes are not part of it because it goes to the periphery to be able to tell the real story because that's where the most accessible emotions are. Their Finest is an amazing movie, and this is one of the best films of the year. Have you seen Their Finest? Did you see Their Finest? No. Oh, my gosh. It's phenomenal. It is absolutely wonderful. it's phenomenal because the guy on the right looks like a complete British twit. Uh, You know what? The uh, the guy... That guy. That guy. Oh, the other guy. That guy? <laughs> Bill Nye? That's, oh, that's Bill Nye. I like him. You making fun of Bill Nye? I guess I kind of was. Okay. Well, Bill Nye is a British twit in the movie. That's the whole point. What? It's a very, you know, it's a very British Bill Nye thing Larry. that he does. No, the, the, here's, what, here's what makes this movie so amazing. And Lone Scherfig, uh, who is just a one, I just love her to death. She's such a good director. It's the best thing she's done in, in years. Uh, what was the uh, an education? Sure, that best was thing, her, uh, coming be- out for. It was be- great. Best thing she's done since an education. That's good, she's so good. I hope she gets an Oscar nomination for this. I hope the I hope all the Dunkirk love doesn't flow over to Nolan and leave her high and dry because this is so magnificent. So this is the idea. Uh, it all takes place in the British film industry during World War II during the Blitz. Uh, or, or during technically during the in the aftermath of the uh, of, of Dunkirk, and uh, the Blitz is going on, 
and uh, there's bombings in London, and life just is absolutely miserable. And uh, Gemma Arterton is uh, a woman who's just looking for a job, and she goes in for a secretarial job and finds out that she's just been hired to be a screenwriter to basically write the women's parts on British movies that need to have a little bit of a propaganda oomph for you know the the home crowd to make the women feel right. And she writes the she writes the women's dialogue. Of course, she winds up doing more than the women's dialogue. She has you know she's connected to all of this, and it all winds up centering around a an event related to Dunkirk that is going to be the centerpiece of a movie and how that evolves and what the truth is and what the the fiction is and how they actually try to make that movie more than it that has a right to be it, and it, and it all flashes back onto what Dunkirk was at that moment and what it meant to British society in much the same way that Mrs. Miniver did and I got to tell you Bill Nye is this really twitty British actor who's, you know, in his twilight years and still thinks that he's the big movie star and everyone remembers him from his detective show and he signs autographs. Everything about this just rings incredibly true. The actors are great. The script is amazing. The direction is just seamless. It is a wonderful film. It's one of the best films of the year. Please do not miss Their Finest. It is amazing. It also has an audio commentary with Lone Sheriff that is wonderful and, uh, and a featurette, and that's about all. But my goodness, what a great movie. What a great, great freaking movie. Did you like it? I did. Um, let's see what else we got here. Smurfs! This film is not very good. Thank you. <laughs> really? Okay. Uh, Smurfs and Lost Village on 4K. Uh, we, we can, we can uh, yeah. I'm I mean, seriously, come on. I, seriously, what are we going to tell okay, you about Julie this? Okay, Julia Roberts. Yay, Julia Roberts does oh, Smurfs. Did she do a voice in this? That, that, that's one of those films where, like, on the junket, when everybody asks, when everybody asks Julia Roberts, like, why did you do the Smurfs? She's like, I want to do a film my kids can see. My kids love the Smurfs. The kids never heard of the Smurfs. Couldn't care less. But that's you know like what? the standard answer. The greatest featurette in history, ever on any disc ever on the 4K Smurfs, is Demi Lovato meets Smurfette. Just want to say that. Now, Demi, that like, Demi Lovato meets Smurfette. Is, is, that, is, that, is that like a lesbian thing, or is I don't there know. something else going on there? It's crazy. Uh, you know, last thing here, we, uh, we should talk, as long as we're dropping names like mad today on this show, uh, The Lost City of Z. Let's, let's wrap up on The Lost City of Z. Uh, James Gray. Uh, feels like yesterday that I was on Brian Burke's student film with James Gray being DP, saying, I don't know what we're doing here. Nobody's doing, nobody's professional. Uh, so James has gone on to be quite an amazing director, and uh, I think The Lost City of Z is quite possibly his best film. Because um, we've been waiting for James to make like not just a good film, but, but a, a great, great film. film. I don't know if the I don't know if this is that breakout film because it 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 didn't really have legs at the box office per se because you know it's well, it, Charlie Hunnam. I'm sorry. Well, it, part of the part of the thing is that Charlie Hunnam just is not a star. Uh, but James gets the best performance possible out of him, and uh, you know this is one of the more interesting things that that Amazon has gotten behind. Uh, unfortunately, it was released by Broadgreen, and Broadgreen is a is a very solid indie distributor that just does not yet have the the juice to put something out into a lot of screens and to make it stick. And uh, they're doing well; they're growing, uh, as is you know as are like A24 and a lot of these other companies of that level. They'll probably win a Best Picture at some point, but they they still don't have kind of the, the the Weinstein juice, you know. To make a hundred million dollar hit out of uh, out of an indie film, they even don't, Weinstein doesn't have the Weinstein. Juice. They really don't, do they? So, Lost City of Z, basically true story. Charlie Hunnam plays a uh, an English explorer, um, you know, who who 
comes across the, uh, is given the opportunity to make an archaeological expedition to discover a, uh, look for a lost city in the, in the Amazon. And uh, it, this is all about his obsession and how it affects his family. At a certain point, he brings his son back. So, I mean, it's a, it is a, it is a fact-based story. It is really interesting. And it's, it, it, as with all great epics of this sort, and we could even include something that's a little more tim, you know, tame like the Mosquito Coast, uh, but the, it is not about the journey or the expedition that is on the screen. It's about the journey that's going on inside of him. And uh, to that extent, James does a really, really good job with this and uh, gets the best performance out of Hunnam I've ever seen. And I'm not a really a Hunnam fan. I, I Ro- get it. Robert Pattinson, I love how ever you know he was a hunk for one moment, and now he's kind of taken a step back into these very sort of uh, nebbishy roles, and which he does here. You know, he's the weakling of this expedition and does a great job. Uh, Tom Holland, right? Before, oh, yeah. a, 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 a non-Spider-Man Tom Holland is, uh, is quite good here as well, and who's really great as his wife is Sienna Miller. Sienna Miller is just fantastic. She's been doing so much great work lately. She's I, hot. I love her. I really do love her. She's hot. She's great. She's hot. And, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's uh, knock off one more real quickly here, um, because this is just junk. Resident Evil Vendetta. You know what I love about that? First of all, this... This film is like it's it's almost like watching, well, like a, like an hour and forty five minute cutscene from a from a video game. It's all yeah, it's all it's all CGI animation. It's not it's even live CGI. action. But like, you know what? But like the Resident Evil movies are bad enough, and now we're gonna do a Resident Evil movie that's all well. This is a well, there's all photorealistic CGI game style. Why? There's Why? you know what? Here's the thing. Why? Well, here's the Why? Okay, two, Why? Why? There's been a couple of these. This Why? Is, this is not the first uh, Resident Evil CGI film, but. Um, what I, what, I love, what I love about the box is that, back of the box, it says, when a fearless enemy out for revenge unleashes a brutal and deadly new virus, Captain Chris Renfield enlists the help of Agent Leon S. Kennedy. Now, the important part is the S. You need to have his middle initial because you might confuse him for the other Leon Kennedy from that other film. Oh, that's right. So he has to enlist the help of Agent Leon S. Kennedy. That's the important part. But anyway, so Whatever. this thing is... Uh, it, it's, I, I, I don't like any of these... CGI films. I think that where the CGI films could break out more if they wanted to would be to take more narrative chances. Right? Because, I agree. Because, because the, uh, the live-action Resident Evil is never yeah. going to do that. No. A bunch of zombies run around. Yeah. Here, at least you've got a shot at having something a little more interesting, which this kind of is a little bit sometimes, yeah. but I mean, really take it to the mat. Yeah. I wish that the animated films would do that. I hear you. Because I, you know what, I, I, I think that that the audience for this film, the kids, I think they kind of appreciate it if they kind of maybe took some chances. Sure. Kids are smarter, yeah. smarter about filmmaking yeah. nowadays. They can take some chances, but they don't do it. Yeah, I hear you. All right, with that, we are done, and uh, we will be back next week.